We, we know that the bar exam is racist. It's debated whether its intent is to be racist, but what is undebatable is that its effect is racist. And that's something that the NCBE uh, has acknowledged uh, in their April white paper. That is, uh, that's a non-starter for us. That's a non-starter for this profession that holds itself up uh, to be one that promotes things like justice and equity and all things that are good in the world. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. This episode of Daily Matters is brought to you by the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference, the world's best legal conference, which is going completely virtual for the first time ever. Get your pass now at cliocloudconference.com. Today's guests are Donna Sadati Soto and Efrain Hudnell, co-founders of the grassroots organization United for Diploma Privilege, a national movement of law students, grads, law professors, and lawyers mobilizing in solidarity for diploma privilege for all, including LLMs and repeat takers. Donna and Efrain, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you so much. So starting off, can you give us some background on United for Diploma Privilege and what the organization is trying to achieve. And for those, of the, for those of our listeners that are not aware, what does Diploma Privilege mean? Absolutely. So Diploma Privilege is a way of getting licensure into the legal profession without having to take a bar exam. Now, whenever we say that, people get uh, concerned, right? Because the bar exam is such a big part of the tradition of the legal profession. But right. it's important to note that, you know, diploma privilege still requires you to go to law school. All right, you got to graduate, you have to meet all the requirements for your law school. But upon graduation from law school, you would be admitted to practice law in your jurisdiction. So this movement has really now become a big national movement. But it very much, as you mentioned, has grassroots origins. So it came to be from one of our co-founders, Bilad. <laughs> she posted something in a like law student meme page on Facebook. And, you know, this was about the time when we were sort of wrapping up um, law school, right? Our last semester of law school, preparing for finals. Everything was remote. We had been kicked off of our law school campuses, right? Everything felt very much like chaos. And she posted something like, there's no way that a bar exam can happen in July, given everything that's going on. And she's like, does anybody want to help to figure out like how we can navigate this specifically in the state of California because she was seeking admission in California. So I responded to that and it sort of just grew from there. We ended up uh, writing a petition to the State Bar of California. We wrote um, then a petition to the Supreme Court of California. And we realized that it wasn't just California that had to deal right. with this issue, right? There's bar exams in so many other jurisdictions, most jurisdictions. So we started to make templates of uh, the documents that we were using to try to convince our state bars and Supreme Courts. And folks were picking that up in other jurisdictions. We very much learned so quickly that having this be a national movement of applicants um, was incredibly helpful in terms of sharing resources, talking about strategy, figuring out how we can get the ball rolling. And actually Efren up in Washington had made this awesome survey for applicants, collecting data on how would a bar exam administration impact applicants. 
And then he shared a template of that survey, you know, with us in California and with other jurisdictions. So this really has grown. It is now not just applicants or recent graduates, it's professors, law school deans, employers, sometimes specific members of state bars or Supreme Court justices that are really acknowledging that diploma privilege is sort of the only equitable solution, the only solution that makes sense, given that we are navigating a global pandemic. And how do you see the response being to these petitions that you're 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 sending out into the the broader movement? What kind of reaction you, have you seen, uh, both from the the people administering the exam as as well as from professionals that are already in the legal profession, fellow students? Tell us what kind of response you've seen. I mean, I think especially from applicants that are the ones that are going to be directly affected by any decision by the Supreme Court and their jurisdiction, recognize that this makes a whole lot of sense, right? So the folks that are going to actually have to sit for an in-person exam that is a public health risk, or folks that are going to have to figure out how to navigate an online administration of the exam, are largely in support of diploma privilege. We have thousands of folks just in the state of California that have signed on to our petitions. And that you know, number just um, amplifies incredibly when you look at our movement on a national scale. Um, we have advocated a ton, especially in the months of like March, April, when you know, COVID was first really disrupting a lot of our lives. Um, and we were surprised to find that Professors were getting on board. A lot of deans of law schools in particular states have come out and supported diploma privilege. I know that's the case, for example, you know, my law school was in Massachusetts. All the deans of Massachusetts law schools wrote a letter to their core in support of diploma privilege here in California. Uh, the deans of all the ABA schools in California came together and submitted a letter to the Supreme Court in support of diploma privilege. You know, that's not to say that there aren't folks that really hang on to the tradition of the bar exam. I think that's something that we have seen with a lot of state bars and a lot of Supreme Courts when they're trying to figure out how to have a licensing scheme during such unprecedented times and being so tied to tradition. Um, I think, you know, we've really had to work hard, really hard to have state bars and justices start to think about, you know, what are other ways that we can do licensing? How do we think outside of the box? How do we come up with creative solutions? Um, and you know, some courts are listening. You know, Efren can talk a little bit to what's going on in Washington because they actually have diploma privilege. Yeah, well, yeah, Efren, why don't you tell us more about what's going on in Washington and how you uh, think about the, the path forward with this issue? Certainly. Um, so Washington State was granted the option of diploma privilege for uh, July and September registrants of the bar examination if you were a graduate from an ABA accredited law school. Um, that order came down, I want to say June the 12th or June the 14th. I apologize for not having the exact date on hand, uh, but it was presented as, as I said, an option. So you can either take diploma privilege, uh, and if you fall into that category of folks, um, you, are you can be licensed to practice in the state of Washington pending your uh, approval or character fitness and subsequent uh, requirements, um, or you can sit for the UBE. Um, it's, it's interesting because Donna kind of alluded to this um, in the reaction we're getting from Supreme Courts and bar associations is that the bar exam is 
It is loved and hated throughout the legal community, uh, but the response that we're seeing overwhelmingly is that courts and, and bar associations are not ready to see it go. It's very much their baby. And so our advocacy has, our advocacy has taken kind of two approaches here. Um, in the near term, we're looking for emergency deployment privilege. Um, that is COVID-19, with COVID-19, there's no way to shoehorn a standardized test that requires hundreds of people in the same room. There's no way to make that happen. So why are we trying to make it happen? Let's get creative, let's do diploma privilege. Um, and there are some states like Utah has a diploma privilege plus model uh, to, to address the concerns that uh, state bars uh, have about protecting the public, uh, where you have there's a supervised practice requirement as well. Uh, but moving forward here in the state of Washington, I think we're, we're really embracing this as an opportunity to, to, to evaluate what is the worth of this bar exam. Um, we know what we think, we know what we want it to do, but there's very little data out there to suggest that the bar exam does exactly what we want it to do. There's assertion after assertion that it protects the public, it measures competency, but there's no way to measure that against those who didn't take a bar exam really. Uh, and in fact, there are mechanisms like reciprocity and comedy between states that suggest that after so many years of practicing, you don't need to take a bar exam. Um, so instead of Washington, we, we have stood up a committee chaired by one of our Supreme Court justices to evaluate um, the performance of those, or really to evaluate the bar exam uh, as a whole. Uh, my understanding is that uh, part of that evaluation will be how my cohort, folks that came in sans the bar exam, uh, perform relative to our peers that did take the bar exam. Did that answer your question? I think it did. Sorry, it was a roundabout way. <laughs> no, it, it, it did a great job of, of answering the question. When you, when you look at the, uh, maybe the short-term reality that that's that's ahead of us we, we are seeing a lot of states you know push forward with the the bar exam making what seem like in some cases pretty uh surface level changes to how the the exam is being administered to account for COVID-19 that that are in many ways still putting uh the folks writing these exams at uh at at risk and uh, seem very bullheaded about proceeding with the status quo or some minor variation of the the status quo. So can can you give us a broad perspective as without necessarily going through every state, maybe which kind of broad categories you're seeing uh, states fall into in terms of how they're approaching the exam? Um, some states like Washington are, are going the direction of uh, of, of diploma privilege, but feels like Washington's in a real minority. What, what kind of breakdown are you seeing and, and where do things stand uh, as a rough breakdown of, of which states are landing in each of those categories? So there's uh, on, the, on the extreme side is the diploma privilege. Um, and so four states currently have diploma privilege in some capacity, and that's Washington, Utah, Oregon, and Wisconsin. And Wisconsin is um, they're, they don't have a bar exam. It's just if you graduate from in-state schools, you can be admitted to practice sans the bar exam. Um, from there, it's kind of a, a sliding scale of spectrum, if you will. Um, and the, more, the most recent trend that we're seeing, though, is that states, whether they're UBE jurisdictions or not, are canceling their in-person administration of an exam or, and or um, in, uh, uh, adopting this UBE light online exam in October. Uh, and this, this, is, this is pretty problematic for a lot of reasons. Um, in general, postponement of the exam uh, means a lot uh, for, for those who you know, re are relying upon the assumption that they'll be working by a certain date. Uh, but it also, there's a public concern here as well, given that most states have, have closed their, their courts to jury trials. Uh, so there's a backlog of cases that need to be heard. In the public sector, uh, especially, there was 
this assumption that there's going to be a bunch of fresh-faced attorneys coming into the field uh, to, to pick up the slack because turnover in public defender's offices and prosecutor's offices, are, it's pretty high. Um, right. And so postponement, postponement is largely see, seen as a way to kind of ride out the storm and then transition to an online exam. Um, and I'll let Donna talk to the specific, the specific problems with online examinations that California teams are better at. Uh, but postponement, um, there's cancellation, there's postponement, uh, there's extension of Rule 9, like, or in Washington, we call it Rule 9. Um, it's a student license to practice law under the supervision of an attorney, um, which is kind of seen as, uh, as a compromise because it gets people in the courtroom. It gets people practicing law. Uh, but the vast majority of jurisdictions, you are treated as like a student intern. Uh, if you are paid, uh, you're not paid as an attorney. Uh, so you're not the assumption that you're working and making attorney salary in the fall uh, after you graduate is no longer valid you're certainly not getting the same benefits as an attorney. Your bargaining power is not the same. And from the employer, from the employer perspective, excuse me, uh, I now have to bring someone on board, treat them as kind of an attorney, kind of not an attorney, mm -hmm. with the intention that in, at some point, they're going to have to take a bar exam, which if they're doing it right, it's gonna require eight to 10 weeks of, of, of studying. Um, that disincentivizes my hiring from the class of 2020. Um, I would much, if I'm an employer, I would much rather hire someone under the student, student licensure model um, from the class of 2021, knowing that I don't need to give them a break in time of the next year, whereas with the class of 2021 graduate, I do. Um, so that's mainly, that's kind of what we're seeing is there, there's, there's this, a large spectrum once we get away from the diploma privilege um, between cancellation, postponement and cancellation. Uh, but a lot of states are picking up this UBE exam that doesn't give you a transferable score, but is offered online. Um, and I think that's probably a good transition point for Donna to talk about the specific issues with, with online administrations in and of themselves. Yeah, 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 go ahead, Donna. So I was just gonna add one more big category effort on that big spectrum is the in-person exams, right? So there's like the oh, yes, privilege, <laughs> and then there's like online administration, online and provisional licensing, and then there's in-person exams. So there's still folks, jurisdictions that are hoping that this month or at some month in the future, it's going to be possible that folks can do an in-person exam. Some folks have this exam like in a week or something. And mm -hmm. for a lot of jurisdictions, they had to sign liability waivers before they go and sit for the exam because a lot of them are in, you know, they're generally in convention centers. You can have hundreds, if not thousands of folks sitting in a convention center taking this exam. So there's a liability waiver. Um, Folks have sort of tweaked rules here and there to quote unquote like accommodate for COVID-19, right? Um, which some of them are just silly. Virginia, for example, says like due to COVID-19, you no longer have to wear a tie to come take the exam. Right. <laughs> what the relationship between a tie and COVID is, I have no idea. But just little things that they're doing to try to offset COVID. So that, that still exists. Um, to the online administration point, you know, I think a lot of jurisdictions, they really want to hold on to the bar exam, but they're also trying to balance all these very real and valid arguments that an in-person exam before any sort of vaccine is available for COVID is going to be a massive health risk. Folks, you know, who have symptoms for COVID might sit and then infect everyone, right? Or, um, you know, they might, uh, if they're immunocompromised, they might decide not to sit for the exam. Right. So there's there's all of these issues. So they're trying to have it be an online exam. It is not <laughs> it's not going to work out for everybody, frankly, at least here in California. You know, there's been a lot of arguments that folks just don't have the infrastructure in place to be able to take an online exam from their house for two days. 
you know, so things like making sure that you have access to internet when you have to log in and out of the exam portal, making sure that you have a working laptop with a working webcam. It can't be an external webcam. It has to be built into your laptop. Making sure that you have like your own space or room that no one is going to walk into, like your pet can't walk in, your mom can't walk in, no one can walk in for those two days. Making sure you have nothing on your walls, making sure that it's quiet because the proctoring system will pick up noise. Um, and then especially concerning for folks is if you've requested an accommodation for a disability, it's sort of in limbo how that's going to be treated for these online exam administrations. Um, and with this sort of remote proctoring software that a lot of jurisdictions are using, it's like running this system on your laptop that is checking, you know, your eye movements, your body movements, sound. So for folks that are, you know, um, that have disabilities and they're taking the exam and they, their physical manifestations during the exam might not comport to what the software thinks is a typical right movement mm -hmm. during the exam. They're going to get flagged. Um, and then they're going to have to be like reviewed later for cheating. So it really is a big mess. Um, also, you know, you're not going to be allowed to have scratch paper uh, for anybody that like, you know, I have Barbary technically as my test prep they're always having this diagram things on physical scratch paper, so not being able to do that. So there are a whole host of issues that come with an online exam. Um, the, at least California Supreme Court tried to kind of recognize this by saying, if you have any of these like accessibility issues or infrastructure issues, then like just rely on law schools in your area and like they will provide test space for you. I don't know. I haven't heard from any law school saying that they're going to be providing test space for us. It was a recommendation by the court. It's not like law schools have to do that. Um, and, you know, if you're going to go to a law school, that's you going in person, right? And so I think disproportionately folks with disabilities who are concerned about an online administration, they're going to be asked to go take an in-person exam somewhere, which might just trigger aggravating disabilities, right? If they're immunocompromised or something, then right. they're going to have to opt for an in-person exam. So, you know, at least on our end, even though a lot of jurisdictions have made these decisions to switch to an online exam, folks are still fighting, right? We're still advocating. We're still raising these issues and these arguments. In California, there was a meeting this morning with the State Bar of California. We all called in. Um, so this is all still happening. Just one final point. I think, um, you know, the fact that there's so much going on in different jurisdictions, that there's different approaches means that there's sort of different strategies uh, and responses, right, different arguments that are being brought up in every jurisdiction. So even though we're a national movement, we are a movement that has particular teams in almost every single state in the United States because it's, it's kind of this effort of like, we have a national vision and this is a national movement, but our responses are so state and jurisdiction specific. So as a default in the advocacy you're doing, is, is there a standard recommendation you're making to states that have to navigate this challenge in terms of which of those paths forward makes the most sense right now, given the, the current state of the, the COVID pandemic? So, you know, our stance from the get-go, this is from March of this year, has been diploma privilege for all of those folks that were registered to take you know, what was formerly or still is the July 2020 exam. Mm -hmm. um, that includes, you know, I, I think as you read at the beginning, folks that are retaking LLM students, whether you're from an accredited or unaccredited school, because all of these different 
like alternative pathways, right? Provisional licensing or having to take an online bar exam. They're not fair to everyone. They're not going to, you know, the impact on different groups of people isn't mm-hmm. going to be equal. Um, and because, you know, we don't feel like the fact that you come from a low income background and you don't have the computer that fits the conditions or the fact that you live with a number of family members or the fact that you're immunocompromised, that shouldn't stand in the way of you being able to get licensing, right? Licensure in your state. Um, and so we really advocate for a broad, um, you know, broad application of diploma privilege. Um, I don't know, Efren, if you have anything to add. I think you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so when when we, so, so that's the logical path forward for exam takers this this July or, or prospective exam takers. Uh, as, as we think more broadly about you know the the post COVID bar exam world, and it it feels like the the coronavirus crisis has prompted a a bigger discussion about the general utility of the bar exam overall. Uh, and, and has caused some to reconsider whether this is, is something that should exist in the first place. And there's been many interesting discussions about maybe the, the unintended consequences of the bar exam, some of the ways it's promoting and maybe promulgating inequality and injustice in terms of uh, who's admitted to the legal profession. Where long-term, independent of COVID-19, would you like to see the, the bar exam evolve into or, or, or maybe evolve out of existence overall. Can you share your perspective on that? Yeah, so we, we know that the bar exam is racist. Uh, it's debated whether its intent is to be racist, but what is undebatable is that its effect is racist. And that's something that the NCBE uh, has acknowledged uh, in their April white paper um, that pushed back against the, the idea of diploma privilege. Um, that is, uh, that's a non-starter for us. That's a non-starter for this profession that holds itself up uh, to be one that promotes things like justice and equity and all things that are good in the world. Um, so I, I think, and we, we have not, uh, truthfully, we have not distilled this down into a tagline yet, uh, but in, in our mo- most ideal world, uh, the bar exam is not the barrier that it is today. There are pathways to licensure uh, that don't include a bar exam, um, whether they're uh, more apprentice-based um, something more akin to uh, how medical professionals advance and uh, transition from their education to their careers. Um, maybe the bar exam looks like a board, kind of how medical boards work, uh, but not a barrier to entry altogether. Um, maybe that's what it looks like, but the bar exam as a necessity, as it is, as a monolith as it is today, uh, in our ideal world, it goes away. Um, but we also, we're also mindful of the fact that there's no completely undoing uh, the traditions as they, are, as they exist. So um, I think that's, that's generally, am I hitting it? Am I getting that, Donna? That's... Yeah. Yeah, well, I you mean... have to add to that, Donna. Curious what your perspective is. And you know, in, in particular, I'd love to, I, either from you, Efrain, or, or, or Donna, some of the background, maybe the history of the bar exam and, and, and what some of those... Uh, roots uh, around the bar exam that that are racist are are are, are driving inequality. You, you referenced a, a white paper that detailed some of this. I would love to hear a bit more, uh, and we can certainly link to some of these resources in our show notes as well. Yeah, so I can let Efren speak to the NCBE white paper. I will say that there also exists 
um, a paper that talks about what really are the origins of the bar exam and school accreditation. Like Efren mentioned, there's debate of you know, whether or not this is accurate or not. But one argument is that you know, the origins of the bar and school accreditation were that back a century ago, um, minorities, whether it was a racial minority or women, were starting to think about entering the legal profession. And these sort of um, obstacles, right, to licensure were put in place so that the, the profession remained male and it remained white because the folks didn't want the, the profession to be tainted, right? They wanted their prestige to be there. And if we let people of color, we let women into the profession that would, um, that would you know, downgrade the prestige. So, you know, that's one argument for why we have the bar exam, why it's continued to this day, why we have school accreditation. Um, and whether or not that is true, you know, the, the one data point that I uh, saw a few weeks ago in California really is so abysmal and disheartening. So, you know, the last administration here in California was the February 2020 exam. Out of the February 2020 exam from black test takers who graduated from um, ABA schools in California, 5% passed the bar exam, 95% <laughs> failed. That is ridiculous. I mean, overall, the passage rate for that bar exam was like 26 point something percent. So it's just, and you know, I know there are differences between like February administration of the exam and July administration of the exam, but the fact that in February, the vast majority of people are failing the California bar exam after they've studied the law full-time in law school, I don't think goes to say that there's something wrong with law school graduates. I just like, what is wrong with the tests that most people are failing, right? Um, so, you know, that's something that was really concerning. And that actually was the reason why a lot of legislators, at least here in California, wrote to the court because they were so appalled by this data. And I think that, you know, with um, the sort of what folks are calling like reemergence of the civil rights movement, you know, I, there, are, there are folks that are constantly and always working on a number of civil rights issues. So I, I feel some type of way about saying reemergence, right? But with the, with the um, visibility of the movement for Black lives recently, a lot of jurisdictions, state bars, Supreme Courts, they've come out with these sort of really, um, what seems like, uh, not like, I think from my perspective, ambitious, because I, I don't, you know, they stick to tradition so hard, but talking about how they're gonna combat systemic racism and inequality, and they're gonna really do their best to see how the legal profession is perpetuating that. You know, they came out with these statements late May, early June. And it's just funny to see that juxtaposed to the data that I had, I had just you know, mentioned due to the February 2020 exam, right? It's sort of like this bar exam and other facets of school license, of, of licensing, like you know, school accreditation, whatever, they are systemic and institutionalized racism, right? So at the very least, I think that this entire movement, um, I hope, and I think it has, got the conversation rolling and is building momentum for rethinking these barriers to entry for our legal profession. And hopefully, you know, we'll see it in, in a place like Washington, thinking through like, what's a very different way that we can have licensing to the legal profession? Because we hear time and time again, that the bar exam isn't a metric for whether or not you're gonna be a good or bad or competent lawyer. The bar exam, you know, you cram for a couple of months, you take the exam and then you forget a lot of the information that you crammed for. Um, the fact that, you know, 
folks aren't going to practice in all the areas of law that the bar exam is testing, right? So are there other ways that we can think about how we can get licensure? Maybe that means clinical credits at, at your law school. Maybe that means you have to take on real clients or do mock trials or negotiations, whatever. But thinking through like what's a better way to do this? I, I do have that white paper up. Um, it's, a, it's a white paper published by the National Conference of Bar Examiners and it's dated uh, April 9th. 2020. Um, the specific quote that I was talking about uh, is, and I quote, it is true that differences in average performance on the bar exam tend to be observed across racial ethnic groups, end quote. Um, you know, I, I think that says it right there. Um, we can do better, we must do better. Uh, so our advocacy now, again, is, is centered on uh, the, the absurdity of administering a standardized test in the format that we, had, uh, that we administer it in COVID-19 and the pandemic. But in the long term, uh, that's not okay. For, that is not an okay, that is not for us to accept as we enter into this profession that it's okay. This, this, we know this test is, is filtering people along racial ethnic lines, but we're okay with it because uh, the, the letter goes on to, the white paper goes on to explain that same or greater differences in average performance across racial ethnic groups also tend to be observed in law school GPAs and LSATs, uh, LSAT scores. Um, that's, I, I'm taken aback, uh, frankly. Yeah. Um, that's not why I got into this profession. Um, so well, it seems really straightforward. If, if you want a, a diverse and inclusive profession, uh, you can't have an exam that is not both of those things that serves as a, a gateway into the profession. Precisely. Yeah, I mean, I will add one thing. I think at least in California, I don't know about other jurisdictions, um, uh, entities are very clear that at least in part, the bar exam is meant to control like the supply of lawyers, right? There's this idea that there's just um, way too many lawyers. And so the bar exam is some way to make sure that we control that supply. To me, that's ridiculous, right? Like having folks go to law school and taking out thousands of dollars um, the hundreds of thousands of dollars, right. right, in debt, and then being like, ooh, yikes, we have too many lawyers, we can't let you in. That's not about competence <laughs> at that, that point. That seems like the wrong place to be applying the filter. Yeah, exactly. After somebody's taken on, uh, what, what's the average, 200,000 plus of student debt by the time you're through law school? A yeah, mortgage. I have 273. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot of money. So having folks do that and then having a mechanism to keep them out of the legal profession feels ridiculous. Also, I think there was some study somewhere that said that that, that argument actually isn't totally true. We might have too many lawyers in the private sector, but we don't have enough lawyers in public interest. A lot of that has to do with the fact that because people have such high loans and public interest doesn't pay a lot of money, folks can't really go into public interest. So anyway, that opens the door to a right. much larger question around paying for law school and what that means for you know how we the, the differentiation between paying public interest and private interest works, but I won't get into that. Yeah, a much bigger problem to solve, but but an important okay. one nonetheless. And, and as you as you said, the the data, even the World Justice Project data that talks about 77% of legal issues going unaddressed by lawyers suggests that uh, we don't have too many lawyers. We maybe have too few lawyers servicing the broad set of needs that that 77% of the population that can't see their needs met with a lawyer are facing. Right. Um, so tell us if the objective of the bar exam is really to assess fitness to, to practice, 
what other mechanisms are available to better address that that need and to to build conviction that that this person that is uh, being licensed is is going to do a good job being a, a lawyer. There's around the world some, a, a variety of models. Uh, up here in Canada, there's been some fairly innovative models applied uh, that that I think offer an instructive uh, lesson for, for the rest of the world in terms of alternative models. In in the the research you've done and the the analysis you've done of alternative models to the bar exam. Uh, can you enumerate what those models are and, and, and if there's one that, that jumps out as the, the direction we should be thinking at, at least uh, at a high level in terms of where we want to take the discussion once the immediate pressures of, of COVID are in the rearview mirror? I, I personally like uh, what Utah's doing. Uh, they have decided, um, uh, minus the requirement that if you were a graduate of a certain ABA accredited law school with a first time bar passage rate above 86%, that requirement aside, I really like the model that Utah has adopted. Uh, their model is licensure uh, on sort of, they're not calling it diploma privilege, they're not calling it diploma privilege plus, uh, really not sure what they're calling it, but uh, the idea is you graduate from an ABA accredited law school uh, and you practice your first year with a full license, but sort of on a quasi-provisional status. Um, mm -hmm. And in that first year, you have uh, CLE requirements and you also have, uh, or continuing legal education requirements, and you also have a requirement that you have at least 360 hours of supervised practice, and I think that's I think that's I think that's wise. Uh, it satisfies the, the public protection notion, the purpose of the bar exam, uh, but it also it gets people working, uh, and it gives them it gives gives them bumpers so that they're not going out and misrepresenting clients or uh, raising the cost of malpractice insurance for firms because supposedly they're being they're being uh, uh, supervised. Um, so I think right. that and and and. An emphasis on it sounds like control. diploma privilege coupled with uh, what, what sounds like something fairly similar to the articling program uh, it, here in Canada, where a lawyer needs to article under the supervision of a more senior lawyer for a year after uh, after graduating. It, it, it feels like those two things brought together in, in a way. Is that fair? Uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't know articling was a thing. So now I'm going to go look this up. But yeah, if that's what you say it is, then yes. Uh, yeah, I yeah. Think, I, I, I think this actually uh, it sounds very similar, at, at least on the surface, to uh, the, the art of playing requirement uh, for lawyers in Canada. I, I also think that there, uh, ideally, again, if I'm you know, king for a day, uh, a renewed emphasis on experiential learning while in law school. Uh, ideally, no one's stepping into the practice area for the first time uh, after, their, after their bar, after they've been to the bar. Um, they've done some work in that field as a student under the requirements and supervisory requirements of the day while they're students before they're ever representing clients for real. Uh, and then you have this you know, supervised practice model that, that ramps up in its own way. But yeah, um, I think those, that is the most equitable means of getting us there. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo what a friend said. I mean, and this is me now speaking sort of in my personal capacity, not on behalf of the org, I, I would love there to be just more requirements for folks to do clinical practice or experiential learning in law school. My law school had, you know, a requirement you to do something for a semester. Um, you know, I wouldn't mind if that was more than a semester, right? Like I did law school clinics for two years while I was in law school. And, you know, I, I took, for example, I took evidence class. I didn't really learn <laughs> like the ins and outs of evidence until I actually had trial and I had to like do it. And 
experience it and understand how the rules work in a courtroom, right? Like that's a much better way to spend my time than trying to read about rules that don't feel like concrete or or rooted in something real in the legal right. profession. Something I've seen firsthand too is the the massive gap uh, between what law school and, and and the bar exam equip you to do and the requ the requirements that many new lawyers, especially if they're going out to start a solo practice or or running a a small firm, the the practical aspects of of running a law firm, of managing a trust account, of uh, managing client communications, of matter management, of doing conflict screening, all of those types of of, of things, the practical skills of running a law firm uh, are, are really something else that I think we could layer on with a stronger focus on experiential learning and uh, clinics and and uh, the apprenticeship uh, model can help to a great degree with that as well. Absolutely. So if our listeners are interested in supporting uh, this this movement, getting involved, giving or, or giving you feedback, maybe and telling you why you're why you're wrong and and the bar exams the right thing, uh, I'm sure people, there's opinions people would like to share. How do they get engaged and how do they engage in a, in a, a dialogue with your organization to map out what the the future of the bar exam might look like? Yes. So if anybody who's listening would like to help or get involved with or support this movement, or if you would like to present counter arguments, right? Um, you can visit our website at unitedfordiplomaprivilege.org. Um, you will there find the contact information for the national team. Uh, you will also find links to our social media if you would just like to get updates. There's also a state page on the website. Like if you're interested in supporting or critiquing what we're doing in a particular jurisdiction, you can go to the state page and you can click on the state that you're interested in and it'll pull up the contact information for our advocacy team in that particular state. So you can uh, absolutely do that. In terms of like ways to get involved or to support, you know, most jurisdictions are still having a bar exam in some way, shape or form. There's a number of ways that folks can get involved if they're interested. They can reach out to the advocacy team in their state and see what needs to be done. They can write a letter to their state bar or their, you know, Supreme Court in their state. They can write to legislators, right? Legislators have had a lot of pull in this movement as well. They can do that. They can make phone calls to their legislators. We have a number of resources on our website. We also have a resource tab that has you know, templates for things. You can also always just email us and we're happy to send you any templates that we have. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, our website has a lot of the information that you'll need. Awesome, thank you. And. Maybe I'll ask each of you to, to, to answer this question on your own, but if there's one takeaway from our discussion today that you'd like to leave our listeners with, what would that be? Why don't you go first, Donna? I think the one thing that I want folks to take away is that diploma privilege isn't this scary thing that's going to set a number of incompetent lawyers onto the general public. There have been jurisdictions that have been doing diploma privilege. Wisconsin has been doing it. We don't have any data to show that lawyers in Wisconsin are somehow so much more terrible than lawyers in other jurisdictions. 
And diploma privilege doesn't mean that there aren't still requirements in place, whether that's graduating from law school, whether that's having supervised practice, whether that means you have to take, you know, continuing legal education courses. We're open to that. We're not here to not protect the public. We're just trying to adopt a solution that makes sense given the current situation and a lot of the ideas that are being put forth by state bars and by the Supreme Courts don't make sense. Having an in-person bar exam or having folks take an online exam from their home isn't going to be fair. So if you're interested in getting involved, again, unitedfordiplomaprivilege.org is our website. Awesome. Efreen. So I think regardless of how you feel about the bar exam, whether you're for it, against it, or somewhere along somewhere along that spectrum. Uh, this is a great opportunity for us to understand what this, what this bar exam does or doesn't do for us. Um, and I think we all can agree that if we're going to do the thing, we should at least make sure it works. Uh, so diploma mm -hmm. privilege is a great way to get a control group out there, obviously with, uh, with you know, reasonable restrictions and, and controls in place so that we're not causing harm to the public. Uh, like Donna said, we're, we're not trying to harm people. But this is a great opportunity for us to see how much this bar exam is really doing for our profession. And who knows, maybe in three years, we'll have a bunch of data coming out from this control group saying that, hey, the bar exam actually does do the thing that we think it does in protecting the, the public measure competency. Cool, we've got data for it, maybe we just make it better. But we think, my position personally, is that in three to five years time, the state of Washington, for example, we're gonna have enough data out there to say definitively that the bar exam doesn't really do a whole lot in terms of protecting the public and measuring and we will have a, a decent enough footing to say, to justify um, not subscribing to this really expensive standardized test uh, that we, uh, <laughs> we visit upon applicants twice a year. Um, so I, this is an amazing opportunity for everyone. It's not just for, for those who don't wanna take the bar exam and think ill of it. Uh, everyone stands to gain something from this and that's objective data over what uh, the bar exam does or doesn't do. Fantastic. Well, Donna and Efrain, thank you both for joining us today and sharing your perspectives. Really enjoyed our conversation and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation with you at some point in the future. We'll, we'll check in and see how things have progressed in a, a few months time. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Jack. I uh, really appreciate you having, having us on. Take care. You too. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast.